The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Awesome. How's it going, guys? I'm good. This is our, uh, this, gosh, this is our last Bible study till September here on Wednesday nights. Can we get it? Like one, two, three? I know. But we have first Wednesdays coming up. Uh, what's that first one, Sam? Do you know June 7th is the very first one coming up? And uh, we're going to have some, uh, just have a lot of fun together this summer and everything. And uh, we're going to be working on a new series to take on come September. So just hang tight in there. I hope you guys enjoy your time. Um, today, we, we're going we're gonna to cover the entire Old Testament in less than 45 minutes is my goal, which means about 50 minutes. That's about what we're going to do. Um, and this is going to be really difficult for me to do for lots of reasons. Um, when I scheduled this, we found out that we, the staff, um, the six, we have six full-time pastors here at Heritage, and the six of us, um, we're going to be going up to Western Seminary for the day. Yesterday, they do a thing every so often called the Spurgeon Fellowship, and it's just a, um, a free kind of one-day conference and training. And so we took all the guys up there and, and then spent some time together as a team last night and drove back today. We were trying to figure out, so who's going to teach that Wednesday night when we got to drive back and all that kind of stuff. And I was like, oh, I'll do it. And while we're in the car, I'll just talk with some of you guys and get some thoughts organized. And then I'll come straight back, jump in the office and get to work and get all my thoughts organized. Well, about 45 minutes into the drive, me and Sam were the only people awake in the car on the way back. And, uh, and then even I got back and our, uh, our bathroom got flooded. I think I've told you guys that story before and it's been remodeled and I was told, hey, I know you need to study, but you have to run to Home Depot. We need something desperately right now. And I'll, so um, you're getting the least prepared sermon that I may have ever done in the history of Heritage Christian Fellowship. Woo woo, <laughs> right? But here's the beauty of it. Then summer starts, you're not going to remember any of it anyway, right? So, all right. So, um, so here's what we're doing. We have just spent a, the last year studying the Old Testament here at the church. And not so much verse by verse, line by line, like we would do if we were doing a Sunday morning study or those kinds of things, but sort of an overview. Um, this was said and has been said of Christopher Columbus, that when Christopher Columbus left, he didn't know where he was going. When he arrived, he didn't know where he was. And when he got home, he didn't know where he had been. And that's all pretty accurate, um, that he, he thought he was going one place, he landed somewhere else, he got back, still thought he'd been somewhere else, like there's just confusion if you really think about it, and we get a day off because of him though, so oh well. But um, the sad truth is though, but that's kind of the case with most people, uh, most Christians or professing Christians um, in America concerning the Bible. Um, they don't know where they're going when they're opening it, when they shut it, they don't know where they've been. And the things that they're dealing with, even in that moment as they're reading, we have so much tendency to just cherry pick things and go, oh, I like this verse and just use it. And, and I don't want this church doing that. Um, so many of the things that I have seen, I'm not on Facebook anymore because I just, I'm not mature enough to handle it. And um, I used to get in arguments sometimes. I didn't mean to, but I would see these things posted and I'm just like, you don't realize what you're saying. You're quoting something so out of context. Uh, let me give you an explanation. I googled this verse in google images today i did not create this i googled this and pulled it up and i want to show you an example of something of somewhere someone has opened up the old testament they found a verse that they've liked they've divorced it completely from context or meaning or any understanding of what god's actually saying in the text and they've made it then to say something 
that, that just kind of warms the heart, shall we say. So slide one. Can you show me this? Look at this nice, beautiful picture, sunset by a lake. It's kind of a moving photo. That's Instagram ready without filters right now. That's what that is. And it says this very famous verse, look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed for I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. What does that verse mean? Well, people read that verse and they're just like, oh man, God is just so good. And he's going to do so many things that are just so amazing. He's going to bless us so much. He's just going to do all this stuff. If, he, if we even understood how good God is and all the amazing things he's going to do, it would just knock us right on our patootie so fast. And I don't even, I, oh, it's just great. Sunset, lake, Instagram, boom, there it is. You know what that verse really says? Let's just read the next verse. Put it up here. Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who marches through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. You know what that means? Hey, um, Israel, you're not going to believe what I'm about to do. I'm going to raise up that enemy nation you're terrified of over there, the Chaldeans. Yeah, the ones that raid other nations, take their land, rape and pillage their families, that group, and they're coming. That's what that verse means. But when we take it out of context and we divorce it completely from any understanding then, and we just go, oh, look at this, and it just, it's just not. So you know what would be a better background picture for that? Can we put the next slide up? That would be better. Let's just put it right on there and slap that on. Or how about the other one? We got one more. Like, just run. Run away. We can just put that, put that picture right there. That would be a better representation of what that verse actually means. It's not warm, fuzzy. That's just not what it means. And so what we've done with this series, you can go away from the, I, I think that's from a horror movie. It probably shouldn't be on a church screen. But um, <coughs> it, we, um, we, the goal with this series was to give you guys the tools to be able to take the Bible in terms of the Old Testament, to be able to open up and to be able to read it for yourselves and to kind of understand what it's saying apart from just taking one verse and going, ooh, I'll highlight and remember that one, and then maybe not even having a clue how everything else is attached. And here, here's the reality of it. This book, what we've just got through studying when we start at Genesis and go all the way through Malachi, is not a collection of individual books in the same way that you might get a collection of, say, the works of um, Charles Dickens. And you can read David Copperfield, but you don't need to have read Oliver Twist to understand. He did write Oliver Twist, right? Am I right? Did, David, did Charles Dickens write Oliver Twist? I don't care. He did for tonight's purposes if he didn't. Um, but you don't need to have read one to read the other because they're, two, they're, they're completely different stories. They're just written by the same author. And yeah, you might go down to Barnes & Noble today and buy a collection of Charles Dickens and it would be in there along with all these other stories, but they're individual stories. And they may be great. They're treasures. But in and of themselves, they stand alone. That is not the case with the Bible. It is divided into books, but it's not separate stories. It's one continuous story. The Bible really, if you think about it, is a, a remarkable, remarkable book. It contains history, which is Genesis through Esther. It contains poetry and wisdom, which is Job through Song of Solomon. 
prophecy, which is Isaiah through Malachi. Then, of course, you go into the New Testament, there's the Gospels, there's the history of the church, the epistles and letters, and then at the end we have John's Revelation. It's a, all sorts of different books, all compiled together, all sorts of different writings. It was written, the Bible itself was written over a 1,500-year span. It's the first pen to paper, pen to whatever parchment, began 1,500 years before the last mark was made. Like that, we can't even get our minds around that in our current context. I mean, our nation's not even 300 years old. 1,500 years. It was written by 40 different authors from every walk of life. We had Moses, who was a political leader trained in Egypt. We had kings, poets, musicians, warriors, shepherds, herdsmen's, military generals. There was a cupbearer to a pagan king, a prime minister in a foreign land, a king and a philosopher, a physician, a historian, fishermen, tax collectors, a rabbi who murdered Christians, and a secretary slash ministry assistant. That's all the different people that compiled together to write the Bible. It was written in different places physically. It was written in the wilderness. It was written in a dungeon. It was written on a hillside. It was written in a palace. It was written in prison. It was written in the roads while traveling. It was written while in exile on a desert island. It was written in times of war, times of peace, times of devastation, times of prosperity, sacrifice, victory, and defeat. It was written during the heights of joy, the depths of sorrow and despair, from times of certainty and conviction to days of confusion and doubt. It was written on three different continents. It was written on Africa, Asia, and Europe. It was written in three different languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. And it was written in a wide variety of literary styles, including poetry, historical narrative, song, romance, didactic treatise, personal correspondence, memoirs, satire, biography, autobiography, law, prophecy, parable, and a love song, a racy one at that, as Jeremy, I, I apologize for Jeremy's teaching, by the way, this is, <laughs> I laughed so hard reading that, and my wife was like, I'm so glad you didn't do that teaching, she would have been embarrassed, it's also written concerning hundreds of subjects, including controversial subjects like divorce, homosexuality, immorality, adultery, parenting, character development, obedience to authority, and more, but the Bible is one book, with one theme and one story that starts from the very first page and weaves its way through to the very last page. The Bible is the unfolding revelation of God's demonstration of his glory through the redemption of his people and the restoration of his kingdom. It's the story of a glorious God who demonstrates his glory and his power and his majesty in the creation and then redemption of his people and the rebuilding of his kingdom over time. That's what the story is about. And then you could bear down even more than that, and you can understand that though the Bible is one book with one author and one subject, that subject is, everybody knows this if you've been to church here for a while, it's all about who? Jesus. It's all about Jesus. The Bible tells us very, actually Jesus himself, his words himself, he said this in Luke 24, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. When, when someone in that day, when a Jewish person said the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, that's another way of saying the scriptures, 
what were the scriptures in Jesus' day? I mean, they didn't have the New Testament, didn't have the Gospels, didn't have that. When Jesus talks about the scriptures, he's talking about the Old Testament. And he says that all of these things in the Old Testament concern me. In Luke 24, verse 27, he says, Beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And so Jesus, which I would love to have been on that, by the way, that teaching by Jesus would have been better than our Through the Bible series, just in case you're wondering. So when you get to heaven, ask him for some like podcasting of that, because that will explain everything way, way better than Sam or I or anyone else could for sure. But this is what Jesus teaches, that the whole Bible is about him. It's not about us. It's, it, it benefits us. Um, there's things spoken to us. Um, there's things that we can learn from and glean from, and there's love and there's hope and there's all those kind of things, but we, we're just bit players in the story, frankly. And in fact, we are the vessels through which God shows his glory to the rest of the world. So we're the, the pawn of the story that is used to demonstrate how good, majestic, and amazing God is. And that's what the Old Testament's all about. And so when people bog down in Leviticus on laws or you, you get too hopped up on, you know, Song of Solomon or, or poems and psalms, we, we're forgetting the big picture that sometimes we need to be able to just step back and take a look at all this stuff and try to understand what is this story really about. And this story is all about the fact that God is good, majestic, and glorious, and look how glorious he is. Look what he's done. And that's what the Bible is all about. So it starts in Genesis. In Genesis, we see God begins the story. He creates heaven and earth. Key part of that is that God was there before anything else. He speaks the earth into existence. But then when he, when he comes to create man, he does it a little bit differently. It says that he formed him. And you might, if you're an artist, you might think of someone who's shaping clay. And, and anyone knows an artist tends to put something of themselves into their art their emotions, their imagination, their creativity, just something of themselves. And, and a lot of times artists, when they're done and they look at something, it's almost like that's part of them. Their art tends to be very special. And that's a very similar analogy to what happens when God creates man. It's very different than everything else that was created. It says that man was created in God's image, that he created us differently than everything else. And, and he formed us in such a way that, that we are not just representatives of God, but somehow we represent or reflect God, that we're in his glory. And he puts us in this garden that's not finished yet and says, we're going to work together. God comes in, you read the creation story, and he's bringing order out of chaos, and he's creating beauty. And then he brings man into an unfinished garden and says, you're going to cultivate and work the ground as well. And in that way, they're going to reflect God again. They're going to bring more order into the garden. They're going to do more cultivation. They're going to subdue the earth. God says. So man's going to partner in God's ongoing work. And God creates Eve. You guys know the whole story. And, and they're created in this place where it's perfection. It is without sin. And then temptation comes. And the temptation that comes at the very beginning is really, really important because it sets the tone for the way Satan has been deceiving people every day, ever since, throughout all of the scriptures and all the way into this very present day. Satan presents to humans a choice. You can continue to be subservient to this God, or you can make yourself God. You can 
Do what he says is right and wrong, and you can recognize right and wrong based on him and his values and his kingship, or you can step out and you can start doing things yourself. You can decide what you want to do, what's okay, what's not okay. If you think it's okay to eat of the fruit, you eat of the fruit. If you think it's okay to do marriage this way, if you think it's okay to do these, whatever you want to do, you can make the choice. You can be God. And Eve eats, and then Adam, who was with her, eats, and the fall has happened. And, and the reaction out of that, there's a fracture that takes place that anytime anyone ever says to you guys, why, if there's such a loving God, then why would he allow babies to be stillborn? Why would he allow terrorist attacks? Why would he allow la 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 la? It, it's, because, it's not his fault. It's a result of a fracturing of the world that God has created. He had told Adam and Eve then, listen, if you eat of this fruit, you'll die. He's telling them, the way to life is to follow me, to live under me, to understand my rule, to be obedient to my rule. I am the way, the truth, and the life, God might say in that day. And, and to follow me results in life and results in paradise. Like, look at the, there's, there's order instead of chaos. But it's going to fracture if you step outside of this. You're not strong enough gods to beat back the decay. And you don't have life within yourselves to be able to promote and extend life the way that I do. So the result of, not, not I'm going to kill you, but the result of your rebellion is going to lead to death. And this is the choice that they make. And so you go from these people that are created in God's kingdom under God's rule with perfect fellowship with him to a fracture. It fractures relationships. Adam and Eve are squabbling. You guys know this. We cover this all the time. It's my favorite book to go back to because everything's laid out in Genesis. It, they, they begin to squabble. They're blaming one another. It, it even results in their children, like the, the first uh, birth pair, you might say, Cain and Abel, committing murder against one another. So from just taking an apple to murder is what takes place. And so we refer to that as the fall, <coughs> where we had this incredible opportunity and privilege and relationship and place with God. And yet, because we chose to do things on our own, we fell and the earth as a result as well. And so everything's fallen. So Genesis is like amazing for two chapters, tragic for a third chapter, and then horrifying down through if you're looking at the effects of that fall on human redemption. And it just gets, you guys know the story, it gets just gnarlier and gnarlier and gnarlier. It goes all the way to the story of Noah where God's like, I repent of even making men, I'm going to wipe them off the face of the earth. But there's this guy named Noah. And even though the Bible says that, that everyone, they were just constantly thinking evil and wickedness always, there's this man named Noah who found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Another key theme that's going to be running throughout the scriptures all the way. And this is, again, why it's important to understand this is all one book, because the themes that happen in Genesis, you find them in Leviticus, you find them in Psalms, you find them in Malachi, you find them in Luke, you find them running all the way through scripture. So there's this, this flood Noah and his family are saved in the ark. You guys know this. And so there's a new start. God even offers them a promise. It's a rainbow in the sky. He says, I will never again destroy the earth like that again. And there's this new start. So surely they've learned and get it right from now on, right? No. The flood's in Genesis 6. By Genesis 10, we have the Tower of Babel. And the Tower of Babel is basically a, you might say, more advanced, a, uh, a more 
forward civilization version of the exact same thing that happened in Genesis chapter 3. Because humanity all comes together, and they're building their own kingdom, and they're feeling pretty, pretty, pretty pumped up about their accomplishments and their abilities. They've completely rejected and forgotten about God. They're not living under him anymore, and they're going to build this city, and they're going to build this tower, this kingdom, and it's to make a name for themselves. They're not interested in the fact that they're in the image of God and reflecting God's glory and God's name. They're going to build their own kingdom, and they will make a name for themselves. And God realizes this is how out of hand everything got when the flood happened. And now look what's happening here. And he, in his grace, refuses to allow them to succeed at what they're doing. He, he scatters the people. He confounds the languages. And from that chapter, there's just kind of like, if, if you had no idea about the rest of the Bible, and let's say we handed them to you one chapter at a time. When you get to the chapter on the Tower of Babel, you've got to be thinking like, I don't know anything's going to change. Like we can kind of see the same cycles over and over. Adam and Eve blew it. Cain and Abel blew it. Noah over and over. All these people blew it. And then there's genealogies in between where everybody keeps dying. Just dead, 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 dead. Nothing's really going to change. And then something crazy happens in Genesis 12. Don't worry, we won't be taking this long in all of them. But Genesis 12, something significant happens. It's referred to as the Abrahamic covenant, though at this particular point in the story, his name's Abram, not Abraham. That'll change later. It says in chapter 12, verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. You ever think about the fact that here's the people in the Tower of Babel right before this, and they're going to build this kingdom. Why? We will make our names great. And we've got to get away from God and do our own thing to be able to do that. And we will be kings and we will build our kingdom. And the whole thing just ends in chaos and confusion. And then God finds this one dude in this one land called Ur, way out in the middle of nowhere. And he pulls him aside and he says, I'm going to make your name great. It's like an incredible promise. He says, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. It's one of literally, Genesis 12, one through three is one of the most important scriptures in all the Bible. Because the promise that happens here at Genesis 12 really sets the stage for everything that happens in the rest of the Bible. All the way through, even into the New Testament, Paul's writings are going to be pointing back to the Abrahamic promise, talking to us as Christians who become followers of Jesus as those who have inherited the promise of Abraham. And he's talking about this, that God in all of this chaos and sin and confusion and destruction that's taking place pulled one guy aside and said, I'm going to do something amazing. And so that point right there, really, though it had been promised in Genesis 3, for those of you that, that know the Proto-Evangelium, that moment, Genesis 12, 1, kicks off the real active, you might say, story of the redemptive plan of God for humankind. And so everything so far in the Bible has been about the world, all the peoples of the world, all the nations of the world. And at that point, everything narrows down and we focus on one family lineage. Abraham, one of the patriarchs. God moves him to a different land. His wife, Sarah, can't have kids. God says, don't worry, I got that. 
Um, that's a dramatic story, Jerry Springer worthy in and of itself, but the promise comes through. Abraham has a son. What's his name? Isaac. Abraham has a son named Isaac. And now the Bible's following Isaac and his lineage. And we're following this one lineage that we would find out much, 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 much later that this is that promised lineage that he's saying, I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to, through you, will all the nations of the world. There's going to be blessing that's going to come through you and through your descendants. Later in Genesis 15, God actually expands on that promise. And he says, he tells him, I'm going to make your name great and I'm going to make you a nation. And you're going you're gonna to have so many children. You're worried you're going to have one. You're going to have so many, they won't even be numerable. There's a nation that's going to come from you. And so we're following this lineage through the Bible. And so we get the story of Isaac. Isaac goes on to have a son. His name is Jacob. And from that moment, Israel will even refer to their God as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You ever wondered why that was the case? Because this is the beginning of God's promise for the people of Israel, but also for the people of us. This is the lineage by which God had made this promise. This is why Genesis 12 is so important, the Abrahamic covenant. And so we go through and it's really focusing on these patriarchs and there's all kinds of drama and stories and all the Sunday school stories, you know, there's a hairy dude and a feminine dude. There's all kinds of things like this, but we're following this family lineage as the family grows and grows and grows, not just numerically, but in terms of wealth and influence. And there's all sorts of train wrecks that come but then we get to the end of Genesis, and it really slows down for quite a few chapters and tells us the story of this guy named Joseph, who the son of, son of, <laughs> and he comes along and ends up getting sold into slavery and is off in Egypt where God just incredibly blesses this guy raises him up to number two in command in all the land of Egypt. And then when there's a famine across all the other land, his family ends up showing up. You guys know this story. And this guy who it seemed like such tragedy had happened has been kicked out, ends up in a place of preeminence and provides the hope and the salvation to be able to continue the very promise of God and save the nation of Israel. So by now, if you're reading Genesis, you're thinking, this is a good story. Now we got our happy ending. And then you turn to Exodus chapter 1, and it's like, yeah, it got bad. Got really bad. Um, because the Pharaoh before that benefited from Joseph so much and really enjoyed his fellowship with Joseph and remembered all the promises made, that guy's not anymore. And a new guy comes, and he's in charge. Now, the amazing thing is, though, is as you're tracking, you're thinking of this Genesis 12 covenant, and as you go through all this, the numbers in Israel continue to grow. And you read even the early narratives in Exodus, and you see that the people are just, they're getting strong. They're a blessing. They're even blessing Egypt because even Joseph himself saved Egypt from the, the famine that was coming because it was his vision that a famine was coming that caused Egypt to start storing up the food. So you see these little snippets of how this lineage that God had promised is going to be a blessing to all nations, not just the Jewish people. He's blessing the Egyptian people. But we tend to get arrogant with our blessings, and we don't like to give God a lot of credit for them a lot of the times. That was definitely the case with Egypt, and they've got a, a myriad of gods. They've got the god of cows, so their beef that they have isn't because God gave them beef. It's because their god of cows blessed them, and then they've got the god of the Nile, and they've got the god of this, that, whatever the other thing is. And so they're, they're just giving credit to all these other places, and, and then they've got God's people here, and they're watching these people be blessed, and then they're starting to worry a little bit about their own well-doing, and they're forced into servitude. The Egyptian people 
take this threat, instead of enjoying the blessing of God in their own nation, they push them into servitude. And the Bible tells us how God's people are crying out under this burden. There's this burden that's on them, and they're miserable, and the work against them is just more and more and more. And, and they're not in their own land anymore, which God had promised land in the Mosaic, or excuse me, the Abrahamic covenant as well. None of these things are happening. And God hears his people mourning out, and he calls out. He says, I hear their cry, and he's going to send a savior. He's going to send salvation. He's going to rescue. He'll refer to them later as, these were my children that were calling out to me. And so I sent help to them. He calls them specifically his son. And so he's going to send someone to go and rescue and restore his son. And so he gets our boy Moses, who also, very similar to Joseph, it's interesting all the different parallels that happen all the way through scripture. You got Joseph ends up number two in command in Egypt. You got Moses ends up way high in command in Egypt. You got Daniel ends up number two in command in Babylon. It's interesting how some of these godly men are protected by God, even in the midst of really gnarly circumstances. It's something Christians should probably hope and pray for and focus more on instead of freaking out every time things get negative around us. But that's a sermon for another time. So Moses is in this position of influence and he realizes that as a Hebrew, these are the Hebrew people here that are just going through all this stuff and he strikes down this Egyptian. You guys know that story, right? He thinks now they're going to follow me and they're going to realize I'm the guy that can lead them to salvation. And so he comes in his power. Like we always think of Moses as being weak because of the later story. But the book of Acts says that Moses as a young man was powerful. That he was trained in everything. He, he learned all the Egyptian education, military, all of these kind of stuff. It even says, despite our belief that he had some sort of speech impediment, said he was strong in speech. He was the most powerful guy, the most powerful and influential Hebrew in the world. And he, more than anybody, would be in a position to be qualified and lead the people of Israel out. And so he strikes down this guy that's beating a Hebrew guy, and he's like, this will show him I'm the guy to lead him out. And they're just like, what, are you going to kill us too? And the whole thing backfires, and so he runs for his life, and he spends 40 years in the wilderness as a shepherd. And then the burning bush happens, you guys know, and the story comes in and God says, hey, Moses, you're the guy that I'm going to use and I'm going to go and deliver my son because of you. And what's Moses' response now? Instead of like, I'm the guy they'll follow, he's like, me? Who am I that I can go before Pharaoh and do this? I think that was sort of the point. It was never supposed to be Moses. It was going to be God all along. And Moses has to go and be humbled for a little while. Nothing's more humbling than tending your father-in-law's sheep. So God convinces him to go. There's a lot of back and forth about that. But Moses goes and the people of Israel delivered. You guys know the story of the plagues. And then there's the Passover. The blood is applied to the doorpost. And the people of Israel are set free miraculously and spared from this curse of death that comes because they killed an unblemished, unspotted lamb. And its blood was applied to their doorpost as a covering for them that when the judgment of death came, it passed over them. And that becomes a massive issue throughout the scriptures moving forward. As we know, our own spotted, spotless lamb, Jesus Christ, and his blood has been applied to our lives. And we all are guilty and guilty and deserving of death. But when that judgment comes our way because the blood of Christ has been applied to us, it passes over. Paul says he's passed over sins formerly committed. It's an amazing 
amazing story. And so we go from Exodus, they get brought out. It's called Exodus because of this journey that comes out of Egypt, and they begin this journey across the desert that's now going to take the next several books of the Bible as God's going to lead them to this land that he's promised them. But he makes this pit stop first that's really important in Exodus. He goes to a place called Sinai, and there on Mount Sinai, God enters into another and a new covenant with the people of Israel. There it's called the Mosaic Covenant. You know uh, many of the stipulations of it by its more common Sunday schoolish type name, the Ten Commandments. God brings Moses up onto the mountain, and he says, okay, here's how this is going to go down. Here's how this is going to work. I am the God that has delivered you. I am the one who loves you. I heard your cries. I delivered you out of Egypt. So you're not going to have any gods before me. You're not going to make any graven images. You're not going to, and the Ten Commandments are all laid out. And so what God is saying to them, he enters into a covenant in the same way that we would enter into a covenant of marriage with one another, where he's saying to them, look, I'm going to do this and this and this and this and this, and you're going to do this and this and this and this. It's laid out really clearly in the book of Deuteronomy when there's a re-utterance of the stipulations of the covenant because pretty soon they're going to be moving into the land that God has promised them. And so the nation is, if you will, all gathering together and saying, okay, remember, nation, this is how this works. And we've got the book of Leviticus, which is part of that covenant. And the book of Leviticus is reminding us that that God has chosen us to be holy and separate from everybody else. And that's why we have all these laws like don't eat shrimp and all these kinds of things. They're not arbitrary and random. The purpose is God is crafting a people for him. You might almost say in the same way that we were created in God's image to reflect something of God. Now God is gathering a new, it's almost like a, a new creation of sorts. He's creating a nation now in his image. And he's saying, you're going to be different than everybody else. I am holy. You're going to be holy. And this is what it's going to look like. But they're not holy people, right? They're like the most complaining bunch in the world. And they're a horribly sinful bunch. But he's got that covered too because he has this whole new institute, like the priest system and the sacrificial system. And he says, this is how our relationship's going to work. When you sin, it must be dealt with, but here's how you can deal with your sin and still maintain relationship with me, still maintain fellowship with me. There has to be the shedding of blood because the wages of sin is death, but this lamb is going to be the one that carries your sin. And you see this continued picture of the fact that sin needs to be dealt with and we can't deal with it on our own, so something else has to deal with it. And then you move into the very end of the book of Deuteronomy. In chapter 28, 29, and 30 in Deuteronomy is a super important one because the people of Israel are reiterating to each other and before God. They're saying, we pledge to do this. We are the people of God. We will uphold God's covenant. We will be faithful to this covenant. It's the same thing as being in a marriage ceremony and saying to your spouse on the other end or your spouse-to-be, I promise to be faithful to you all of our lives. It's the ceremony that's happening. And, and there's, there's an actual breakdown of what happens in Deuteronomy 29, what's going to happen if they're unfaithful. He says, if you walk away from this covenant, this is what's going to happen to you. And it's really similar, again, to going back to Genesis chapter 3, in a sense. If you walk away, there's going to be death. 
You're going you're gonna to walk away from my protection. You're leaving my kingdom. You're leaving my rule. You're leaving my authority. You're taking things on on your own. You don't even understand the dangers that are out there, especially now that death is in the picture. And if this happens, if you walk away and you're unfaithful to this covenant, you're going to be taken away. You as a nation will be scattered. It's not going to go well for you. And the people of Israel are like, we're in. And so the book of Joshua comes up. Joshua seems to be doing pretty well, right? They go into the promised land. And it's interesting, Joshua really showcases the faithfulness of God, doesn't it? Because all of this time, he's promised them this land. He promised them the land to who? Way back in Abraham. And if you really look at the Bible, the train wreck of stories that happened between Abraham and Joshua, God would have every right to go, okay, I picked a bad group. I'm going to go, let's see what the Chinese are doing. Like he could have totally left them, but he doesn't. He says, nope. I'm going to be faithful to this. And now here he is. He's finally led them to the land. And even the conquest in the land isn't the work of the people. It's the work of God. And they took down Jericho with horns. So God has been so faithful. And look how good he's been to them. It's a land where like grapes the size of basketballs and milk and honey and all this kind of stuff. It's a rich, rich kingdom land. They are blessed above all other nations just like he promised Abraham to do. But there's also something else that's happening in the book of Joshua, beginning and end, if you read through and you notice. God's saying, we're doing this, but I'm calling you people, be faithful. Be faithful. And don't don't think of this as just a straight up from one authority to a nobody being told, do what I say. Think of it in terms of a covenant, of a marriage covenant, as if a husband is saying to a wife, be faithful to me. Or a wife saying to a husband, be faithful to me. Why? Because I love you. Even in the book of Deuteronomy, which none of us love to read on our morning devotions, none of these things, it's like law and it's all boring and all these things. But even in all these law things, right in the middle of the book of Deuteronomy is this incredible, incredible picture where God says, look, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you. To be a people for his treasured possession. Think, now, again, think of wedding ceremony when he's talking like this, okay? God has chosen you for a people to be his treasured possession out of all the people on the face of the earth. It's not because you are more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath he swore to your fathers. Who are the fathers? That's Abraham. Remember the covenant? I made a promise to your fathers, and I love you, and it's because of that promise, because I'm faithful to my word, and because I love you that I'm doing this. I lost my place on that rabbit trail. People, because I was treasured by people. It's not because you're more numbered, the fewest of all people, but because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, and the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments to a thousand generations. Like he's excited to be in this relationship with them. He loves them. He's been planning this for a while. When they get there in Joshua, God is thrilled to give them the land. In the same way, a husband buying his first house for his family is thrilled to provide a house. This is where God is. But he's telling them, stay faithful to me. Please remember, Israel, you didn't get yourself out of Egypt. 
You didn't get this land. You didn't feed yourselves in the wilderness. You didn't lead yourselves through the wilderness. You didn't do any of those things. It is because I love you and because I'm faithful to my promises that you're here. Please, even for your own good, be faithful. That's how Joshua goes. So how well does that go? Well, the next book's Judges. <laughs> and Judges is a cyclical train wreck where the people of Israel do the same thing they did in Genesis 3, and they go, nah, we'll be our own gods. We'll just step out. We'll do our own thing. It says it literally it, over and over and over. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did right in their own eyes. Think about that in terms of Genesis 3 and Satan telling them, you won't eat if you, sh the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that whole idea of this is what's good, this is what's bad, determining those things for yourself. Here it is in Judges. Everyone did what? What was right in their own eyes. So you see this cyclical thing. And Judges is a gnarly book. The people have no king, no leadership, but they do have one, don't they? Don't they? But they're not acknowledging it. They want to do their own kingdom now. And so what happens is it ends up leading them into horrible apostasy and idolatry. An invading force comes in. They get taken captive. They're being beaten down, whatever the case may be. They cry out to God for forgiveness and deliverance. He restores them and saves them. And then they do the whole thing over again. It happens over and over and over and over. And it's not one of those books that has a good ending because the very last verse of the whole book of Judges is... In those days, there was no king in Israel, and they did what was right in their own eyes. So what's going to happen with them? I mean, God made this promise, but then, but then there's this covenant with Moses that there's stipulations to uphold here, and, and they're not being faithful to it. It's not going really well. Well, it's not chronologically accurate, but within the canon of Scripture, there's inserted this beautiful story, love story called the Book of Ruth where someone even from the outside is grafted in and you see this faithfulness to the covenant promise of God that even though there may be gross apostasy going on everywhere, you see God continuing to craft that lineage. He, the pen that's drawing the family tree line is still moving, no matter what all is going on. Well, then we come to First and Second Samuel. So if narrative-wise you're going through Judges and it says there was no king and everybody did what they wanted and there's chaos and all these kind of things, sooner or later we've got to have some order. And so instead of going, oh, yeah, we do have order. God gave all that to us. They're like, what we need is a king. Give us a king. And so First and Second Samuel is the story of the monarch kingdom of the people of Israel where they demand a king of their own. They get Saul. Saul's not a great king. And what is the thing that causes Saul to fail as king? He does what is right in his own eyes. He does not uphold the promises, the covenant you might say that he as king makes when he's sworn in as king. He decides to do his own thing, his own way, and God removes his spirit from him. God removes <coughs> his presence from him. And he picks a guy who, at this point in scripture, other than Abraham, is probably the most important person in all of the Bible up to this point, and maybe one or two um, other than Jesus in all of the Bible overall. It's a guy named David. Another little nobody, another shepherd, interestingly enough, that gets chosen. David ends up being the one who is selected as king. And you guys know the story. There's David and Saul, and they have their clash, but eventually David comes and he becomes the king and Israel starts looking pretty good at this point man we got a real kingdom here now David is 
broken for sure, right? I mean, it's hard to go, our king's awesome, except that time that he took that other lady, impregnated her, and killed her husband. But our king is amazing. But there's something about David that God loves. When you read the Psalms that David wrote, and you read them in conjunction with the stories, even the hard times that are going on, you see that though David is flawed, and though David's humanity gets in the way, and though David runs with his flesh at times and does all these other things, he has a real and genuine relationship with God that even in the deepest of sin, he finds repentance and returns to God, and he pours out his heart in sorrow and repentance and says, Lord, what do I do? And there's the, there seems to be this honoring of God with him that in spite of all his flaws, he's like, but he has a heart after me. He loves me. He's not perfect. There ain't nobody perfect. I mean, look at this world. But he loves me. And I love my people, and I hold to my promises. And he's in the lineage, interestingly enough. And so David becomes a significant king. To this day, if you go into Israel, people still long for David to be king. But there's something really, really important that happens again in the story in 2 Samuel chapter 7. In 2 Samuel, Samuel chapter 7, David is talking to God. Well, for, he's kind of thinking to himself, his kingdom has just blown up. Things are going really, really well. They're in a time of peace. David's living in a palace, but all along... God, in his presence, still dwells in a tent. It's referred to as the tabernacle. It came along earlier in the Old Testament. So here's David in this palace with this massive kingdom, and the presence of God is living down this, in this tent. And David, though his heart is good, he makes the mistake of acting with pity towards God. And he's like, oh, man, oh, poor God. He's down there in that tent. I'm living in a palace. This is messed up. I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build God a house. He goes to Nathan the prophet. I'm going to build God a house. Look at him. That's not right. Nathan's like, you know what? That's a good idea. Go ahead and do that. But then that night, Nathan has a dream. And God comes to him and says, this is what you need to go tell David. He's like, David, you're going to build me a house? No, I don't think that's how it's going to go down. Second Samuel chapter 7 says, Now therefore you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, and made you prince over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all of your enemies before you. And I will make you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel. And I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men will no longer afflict them as before. From the time I appointed judges over my people Israel, I will give you rest from your enemies. Moreover, declares the Lord... I will make you a house. And when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will reestablish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will disciple him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul. What's happening here? This, if I said the Abrahamic covenant is maybe the most important text in the Old Testament, it, if, it's, if it's like 100% most important, then 99.999%, and I, if not dead equal, is this. It's referred to as the Davidic covenant. 
God is now building on the promise he gave Abraham and this idea, I'm going to build a nation, I'm going to build a kingdom that's going to bless everyone. And now he's narrowed it down from a nation to a person and a lineage. And he says, I'm going to build you a house. Your lineage will last forever. Your throne will last forever. Your son will sit on the throne. There will never be an end to his kingdom. Now, how much of that was fulfilled? Well, Solomon did take the throne. And Solomon ends up even building the temple that David wanted to build. But that's not ultimately what it is that he's talking about. Solomon's throne did not live forever. And it's, this is a different kind of covenant. In the Mosaic covenant, it was like, I'm going to do this, and you're going to do this, and if you fail on your end, the whole thing's going to fall apart. And there's none of that in this. He's like, this is what I'm going to do. And what do we know about God that he's been saying all along? I keep my promises. I keep my promises. I keep my promises. I know everybody in the world is a train wreck, but I keep my promises. And so he says of this lineage, I'm going to make this guy's throne live, last forever. Well, Solomon's throne didn't last forever, so he can't be talking about that. He's talking about the greater than David that will come later. We'll get back to that in a moment. Don't forget that. So the story of First and Second Samuel is the high point of the kingdom. It goes into First and Second Kings, and we get the reign of Solomon. And everything seems to be going good for a little while, but then things just begin to implode. We've got rebellious sons that are fighting for the throne, and Israel is ripped in half. And at this point, you start seeing things happening that sound awfully familiar to all those conditions that took place back in Deuteronomy when they said, if you are unfaithful, this is what's going to happen. And so God raises up a group of men known as the prophets. There's guys like Isaiah, guys like Elijah, and they come into the land being ruled by wicked leaders and prevailed with idolatry and demonic leaders and influences. And these prophets are saying, don't you remember what you promised? Don't you remember God's warnings? We are God's children. We can't be like this. We've got to resort back. There's death coming if we don't repent from these things and turn away. That's the message of the major prophets, Jeremiah and Ezekiel. It's the message of the minor prophets. Once Israel is already in captivity, the prophets are constantly in the Old Testament telling people, God is faithful. We are not. We need to repent and return to him. That's where life is. That's where blessing is. And so all of the prophets can be summarized. There's much more. Obviously, I'm being very reductionistic, and that's because I got five minutes to finish the rest of the Old Testament. So you'll just have to work with me on that. But the idea on all of them is this covenant loyalty, and so Israel is fractured. And then as you guys know, the promise that God made in Deuteronomy takes place. If you leave, if you're unfaithful, you're going to be taken away. The Babylonians come, the Syrians come, and Israel's no more. And now you've got to be looking at stuff going, well, Abrahamic covenant. It was a nice ride while we had it. And the Davidic covenant, man, I know he had good intentions. We all messed it up. But then the prophets, even through all that time, as they're talking, they keep saying over and over, one thing they keep saying is, God's faithful to his promises, God's faithful to his promises, and they're speaking still, even in the midst of judgment, they're still speaking about a day is coming when everything's going to be amazing. And then we start seeing these just incredible, miraculous things take place. Like one of the kings just says, you know what? Yeah, I'll fund you to go back and rebuild Jerusalem's wall. I'll pay for it and I'll send supplies. How about that? Why? Why would he do that? I mean, literally, it makes no sense. And yeah, go rebuild the temple, Ezra. Go take care of that. And you see 
Israel beginning to gather back together, just as God had promised, hey, I'm going to regather my people. You start seeing this sort of reunification of the nation of Israel. The worship is established again at the temple, and the walls are built. Nehemiah institutes this broad reform through all the way through the nation. They get the people together again in Nehemiah, and what do they say? Now, Nehemiah, we, we covered it a long time ago because in terms of the order of the canon, <coughs> Nehemiah is in the middle. It's kind of unfortunate because Nehemiah is the chronological end to the New Testament. So when Nehemiah ends, nothing else happens until the New Testament. And so what is it that happens at the end of Nehemiah? Well, the walls are built, the city's safe, the temple's back, there's worship ascending. Hey, it looks like we're coming back together. This whole Abraham thing might not be over just yet. This whole opportunity we've been waiting on, it looks like things are going to be okay. And so what does he do? He gathers the people together, and they actually reinstitute the details of the Mosaic Covenant from before. We will be faithful to God, and it will look like this. God has been so faithful to us. We will do these things. They read the law to the people, and the people respond, everything it says we're going to do. And how does that go? Nehemiah goes away for a couple years comes back to check everything out. The walls are in disrepair. The temple worship's not happening. There's idolatry there again. And Nehemiah goes nuts on the people there. He's like ripping their hair out. Like he goes crazy on the people that are there. And you guys know the very end of the book of Nehemiah, if you think about it as the end of the Old Testament, it ends by him going, God, please remember me. I tried. And that's it. And there's 400 years of silence. 400 years. The Old Testament can't be a book by itself. No one ends a book like that. The Old Testament is a book without an ending. And the New Testament is a book without a beginning. But they're part of one continuous story. And so I want you to look, and then we're going to be done at Luke chapter 2. This is only going to take a moment. <coughs> Sorry, Luke chapter 1. No word from God for 400 years. And there's been different conquering armies. Greece, Alexander the Great. There's been all these armies that have come. The Maccabean revolt happened, but then the Romans come in and they take charge. And so this kingdom that all of Israel keeps thinking that they're, gonna, they're going back to the Davidic promise. When the, when the people of Israel are waiting on this kingdom, they're going back to the Davidic covenant where God said, your kingdom will stand forever. Your enemies will never bother you again. You will live in peace and harmony and I will protect you. That's what they're waiting for. And now for 400 years since Nehemiah even, that's just 400 years since Nehemiah, by the way. That's not taking all the years of captivity and slavery and poverty and the division of the kingdoms when they weren't even a unified nation anymore. Like we're talking hundreds of years of train wreck and very little seemingly hope. And then suddenly out of nowhere, you get this story in Luke chapter 1 where there's this lady named Elizabeth who's barren, really similar to another Old Testament family where a promise came to, right? guy named Abraham and his wife who couldn't have a kid and this promise comes out of nowhere that says you're going to have a kid and I'm going to bless you and you're going to have such an incredible lineage that's going to come out of that well God comes to this lady named Elizabeth an angel comes do not be afraid Zechariah 
Your prayer's been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear a son, and you will call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness and rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and there's a mission for this guy that's to come. And then there's another angel that comes. Verse 26, Gabriel was sent from God to the city of Galilee to a virgin who was betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And she was troubled at this saying, trying to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And I want you to think about the Davidic covenant here. Look what the promise is made. Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I'm a virgin? The angel answered her, Oh, I'm sorry, I skipped it. Verse 32, And he will be great. And will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. It's the, it's, it's the only way it could be more clear is if the angel said, this is the Davidic covenant. And then said that. It's the promise God made from the very beginning. Not because the people were faithful, not because the people were good and earned it, but because God is faithful and because God loves his people. And then you have some homework before we go. Jeremiah chapter 31, I would love for you guys to read and meditate on as well as Ezekiel chapter 36. Because we had the Abrahamic covenant where the promise was made, I'm going to make a nation out of you and I'm going to bless the world through you. We had the Mosaic covenant to the nation, this is how our relationship's going to work. We have the Davidic covenant. I'm going to make a king out of your lineage, David, I'm, and his throne will never last forever. But there's one more covenant to come. And at first you would think, these covenants haven't gone real well for Israel, especially at the time it's given in the days of Ezekiel and Jeremiah. But God says to him in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt. My covenant they broke though I was their husband. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. And no longer will each teach his neighbor or his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. And I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. And then in the Ezekiel version of that, in chapter 36, he says, I'm going to give them a new heart. I'm going to remove this heart of stone and give them this heart of flesh that something's going to happen, that all those failed promises that happen over and over and over that they can't do, that arid obedience that just keeps messing up over and over and over and over. I'm going to do something to fix it forever. I got a whole new covenant here. I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to put my spirit within you. And all of those things are made possible because... The Davidic covenant was also true because Jesus Christ was born. You ever, I mean, think about it. That's why Jesus says to the apostles, it's better if I go because I can send my spirit. Like you're never going to pull anything off successfully on your own and your history attends to it. But I'm going to send my spirit. And that's what happens in the book of Acts. And that's why if you guys ever wonder, when, I, when you think of the phrase last days, don't think of the left behind movies. When the Bible speaks over and over about the last days, it's referring to it because of this covenant. That God has created a new covenant. 
And there will be no more covenant. This is it. We are part of the program right now that will last and ride out until the day Jesus comes. The day that that happened, and maybe even more specifically, the day that Pentecost came, a a preacher we heard speaking yesterday. At that moment, the clock started ticking on the return of Jesus Christ. And we're here now being busy about his kingdom work for that. So we're just bit players in the story. We're no different than Israel, except yes, we are, because now... We have the Spirit of God living within us. We have the Spirit of God empowering us. We have the forgiveness of Jesus and the assurance, and we have the empty tomb to prove that all those things took place. And now we know, even as he said, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. So when you read the Old Testament, understand it's one story. And to take a verse like that one, oh, I'm going to do a thing that you wouldn't believe, you're divorcing it from the story and making it about you because you feel like just finding something warm and fuzzy blessing-like to read. You don't need to find anything warm, fuzzy, blessing-like to read. He's already given us those things all in Jesus Christ and in the new covenant. We don't need to cherry-pick things. We can look at the story and go, all of that is what makes me feel good. If my day is garbage today, I'm fine. If it's not warm and sunny and lake, like the photo that shows, if it rains and hails, dents my car all to pieces, breaks my windshield, my house floods, my kids run away, my dog gets sick, if all of those things happen today, I am still most blessed among all the people of the earth because I'm part of a story where the God who spoke this whole world even to existence says, I love you, and as bad as things look, I am faithful to you, and I'm coming again. Amen? Let's stand and pray. (coughs) Father, thank you so much for your word. I pray, God, that these things we would be able to just sort of simmer on. I pray, God, that you'd be able to help us recall these sorts of things to memory as we read your word. I pray, God, for heritage that we would not be a people ignorant of your word. We'd be students of your word because there's such life and joy and peace in them. And I pray you'd bless your people tonight as they make their way home, Lord. Fill them anew with your spirit, with your hope, with your joy. May we be faithful to your covenant and may we be um, quick to fall to a knee and repent when we are not knowing that, Lord, there's such forgiveness available from you. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. God bless you guys. Have a great day.